Today on I'll Have You Know. In 2015, there were something like five or six startup development organizations in the city of Houston. Halliburton Labs is the 38th. So when you think about the kinds of resources that are being made available in and around the city, it's significant. Scott Gale started Rice Business with an entrepreneurial mindset. He took full advantage of everything the program had to offer. Less than two years after graduating from the executive program, he was tapped to lead the new Halliburton Labs, advancing cleaner, affordable energy. He talks about his new role, starting in the middle of a pandemic, how he helped to improve the integration of executive students at Rice Business, and his side hustle, which involves that voice of his. Thank you for joining us on I'll Have You Know, Scott. Thanks for having me, Christine. It's great to be here. Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about your current role, a really exciting role and venture really that started in June. You were named Executive Director of Halliburton Labs. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is Halliburton Labs, its mission, and, and how um, you came to be named as Executive Director? Our mission at Halliburton Labs is to advance cleaner, affordable energy. And for us, we're nearest akin to a startup accelerator in terms of our model. So our approach is to take a small single digit percent of equity from an early stage company that's solving problems in the clean energy space. And in exchange, we give them access to Halliburton's facilities, our people, our network, and in an effort to help them prepare for scale. We give them 12 months of access. And so to kind of summarize, we put an industrial wrapper around an early stage company. We're focused on companies that are working and or have solutions in what I term tangible tech. So material science, hardware, chemistry. We're not saying no to software, but kind of our starting place is in kind of this tangible tech realm. And so usually startups in that are solving hardware-based problems they have more difficulties in terms of getting to scale, need more patient capital, need additional support. And so as we kind of looked out across the landscape, it was clear that there were certainly support organizations, university incubators, other really well-known groups that are out there that are kind of focused in the hardware space. But we thought that Halliburton have some really unique skill sets and capabilities. We've been taking the hardware to scale for decades and decades. And so I like to joke that we package up our scar tissue and make it available for these early stage companies. We've seen uh, what um, some people call sort of entrepreneurship with a, a lot of major companies starting uh, something like this internally. Um, do you see that as as an area where we're going to see even even more growth? Obviously, it's important to Halliburton. Yeah, and I would say certainly kind of to your previous question of sort of how I came to get involved and be in the role. I, I think it's definitely that entrepreneurship experience. I'd say my entire career, I joke Halliburton's the youngest company that I've worked for in my career, but all of the jobs that I've done throughout my career didn't exist until I stepped into them, including this one. And so in terms of scope or remit or whatever that might be, and so I've really had the opportunity throughout my career to have kind of the backing of a large established corporate, but work on something new and novel and in many cases, something that the company has never done before. And so I, I do think that entrepreneur 
kind of model makes a lot of sense. I think that as companies look at various approaches and models and ways to breathe new innovation and, and bring in new ideas, I do think there's a lot of uh, interest. And I think uh, you could certainly consider Halliburton Labs an example of that. It has to be incredibly exciting for, for you personally in your, in your career path. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, it, it's really pretty fascinating when I looked at the initial deck that uh, the slide deck that was put together to say kind of, hey, here's the concept. This is what we want to go do. And you're talking about a Venn diagram of the startup community, the venture capital community, and what we'll term just kind of broadly clean energy. And we can get into a bit more detail about kind of how we define that. But those three areas were in many cases, blank sheets of paper for Halliburton. And so to stand up a new organization that's focused on those three areas presented a lot of interesting challenges. But those are things that uh, with time and persistence, you overcome them, you get up and running. And a big part of it is is just uh, beating the drum on what our mission is and what it is we're trying to accomplish and where we try and fit in. I like to think of ourselves as kind of another voice in the choir in the startup development world. There's a lot of interesting resources, again, that I've referenced that are out there and available. And we're trying to position ourselves as kind of like the graduate program to some of these other startup accelerators and the incubators. And so it was certainly a gap that we saw and uh, is something that, you know, for, for us, we have to learn by doing. You mean it by doing like you just get out there and you start trying things, you start having conversations. And that's really been the case over the last number of months. Um, you know, the the pandemic has kind of allowed me from the comfort of my home office to meet 10 to 15 new people every single day. And that has really helped to kind of accelerate the network of Halliburton Labs and the number of people that we're we're getting connected with from the venture community to the academic community to the entrepreneurial community and so really just trying to be actively involved in getting out there and and raising awareness about the resources that we're making available we'll dive a little deeper into your experience at rice business in just a moment but i do want to touch on this sort of internal entrepreneur um role that you have and i was speaking to a current rice business student last week and she even talked about a lot of um mba students are sort of realizing that you can't have this entrepreneurial mindset and role even within a corporation. Is that something that earlier in you, your career you, you saw as an opportunity or possibility? Or was that not until more recently when you were um, offered this opportunity? No, I've absolutely seen that sort of throughout my career. And it's something that while my career initiated with a very large established company, it was clear that having the resources and the backstop of a large corporation can really help to take and mitigate some of the risks and still get out there and build something new, have an impact. And, and in many cases is easier to scale. It comes with other difficulties. Um, there's there, I would say, generally speaking, large corporations are, are not built for change. They're built for the opposite of that. They establish, we've, we have well-established processes we get really good at something as a corporation, regardless of what it is. And I term it the whole big kind of enchilada. I, I describe it as the weight of incumbency. And it's just when you have a big incumbent position, you've been doing something for a long time and that's made money. 
you build process around it, you protect it, you make sure that it stays as as efficient as possible. And those kinds of things are really tough to change. And when you think about sort of change leadership and kind of the things that are necessary, you, you have to have this impetus for change. And that's, I think, what's what's really interesting about change leadership is, and particularly in 2020, is everybody's expecting something different. And so you have this unique period of time right now where change is expected, but the risk is changing for change's sake. And oftentimes that's not done rooted in the right principles of strategy and ensuring that you're focused on the things that make you as an organization distinct and unique. And and that's something that uh, many organizations sort of lose track of as they get pressure to change and, and do something different and bring in new new innovation. And so you really have to have both of those things. You have to have that impetus for change. You have to be really clear about why you're changing and, and where you're heading. And that when you arrive there, that you're going to be in a, a strategically competitive advantage um, space as you go through that. So that's um, that I think is really important as, as we've considered Halliburton Labs and the capabilities that we bring to bear and and the rationale for, for why we're doing what we're doing. Your mission is advancing cleaner, affordable energy. What exactly does that mean? Does it include... Um, renewables or is it more traditional or a mixture of both? I would say we're looking in five primary buckets when we think about cleaner, affordable energy, particularly for Halliburton Labs. And first is uh, energy generation. Next is transmission or distribution. So kind of the grid, energy storage, energy conservation, and kind of broadly circular economy kinds of applications. And so for us, it really has a very broad definition. It's almost easier to describe it as we're looking at things that are outside of what Halliburton do today in energy. We do a lot in energy today, but generally speaking, we're an upstream oil field services company. And so the kinds of things that we're looking at from an application standpoint are really quite broad. And maybe just a quick comment about that, you know, for for us, the reason that's the case is because there's a fundamental belief here that the energy landscape is changing and it will change and it will the future mosaic of energy will be different than what it is today but in terms of where that lands we don't no one can say exactly where that's ultimately going to go but it's going to take a long time it's going to take decades for us to get there while there's a lot of great momentum right now and we will see incremental improvements and changes along the way, it's going to take a long time for, say, renewables or, or other energy sources to be on scene in mass. But it's also a recognition that it's going to take hundreds, if not thousands of different technological improvements and advancements, whether incremental or breakthrough, to get us there. And so for us, we're starting with a pretty uh, broad remit. Launching in the middle of a pandemic has uh, been a challenge, I'm sure. What um, has that been like exactly? Do you see some silver linings, um, or has it been, um, you know, pretty difficult to to start something up in the middle of all this? It comes with some difficulties for sure. Uh, I would say, though, for us, I mean, the roots of of the effort here go back about a year and a half, two years ago, and so I would say that you know we spent a lot of time researching corporate innovation. Uh, from Bell Labs to Kodak to Lockheed Martin and looking at sort of how other 
organizations in other markets and industries, how they thought about these kinds of challenges, and then looking ahead to what are the components and constituent parts of an innovative environment and what's needed and what's required. And so with all of that sort of foundational work behind us, I would say the pandemic has, has it's, it's certainly created, I would say, a distraction. I mean, there's things that we have to kind of work through and, and burn calories on to make sure that we get right. But once we create kind of a, a safe environment and, and do the things that are necessary to, to keep social distancing and wearing masks and, and all of these things, um, a big part of it is, is networking and, and giving to the startup community. And that's been something that we've been actively involved with uh, since launch. And so for, for us, I would say I, I could probably make the argument that the progression of Halliburton Labs has actually been accelerated due to the pandemic versus hindered. And given the acceleration, uh, the landscape of change, do you believe that Houston will remain the energy capital of the world? Houston has all the makings to remain the energy capital of the world, be the energy transition capital of the world. And there's a few things related to that that I think are really important. As I talk to startups, not only in the city, but around the country, around the world, those companies that are solving energy-related problems, they all have Houston on their radar. They all see that getting to Houston at some point in their journey is going to be an important milestone for them, whether that's moving their headquarters or whether that's setting up a satellite office or whatever it might be, but Houston is, is on their radar. I would say the expansion of startup development organizations in Houston can't be overlooked. Houston Exponential quoted uh, something to me that in 2015, there were something like five or six startup development organizations in the city of Houston. And Halliburton Labs is the 38th. And so when you think about the kinds of resources that are being made available in and around the city, it's significant. You hear uh, Mayor Turner talk about the focus and the importance of, of bringing new uh, innovative organizations to the city, and they're really coming. And I think that uh, one of the things as I think about the development of startup communities and kind of those, again, key components of that, one of them is the focus on what's termed kind of the creative class more broadly and having the right concentration of the creative class and curating collisions and working through all these things. But one of the things that is underappreciated in terms of a member of the creative class is engineering. And the city of Houston has every science discipline, every engineering discipline that you could imagine. We have that in spades, we have that in mass. And I think that that's something that as this energy transition progresses, we have all of the right components to to make it successful. And there is a lot of effort underway to ensure that that continues to progress. And I think that's certainly rooted in the leadership of the city. It's rooted in the universities that are actively working and investing in those kinds of resources. And I think it's over time as entities like Halliburton Labs and others start to come into the city and make those resources available, it's going to make it easier for an entrepreneur to 
initiate that journey and be successful along that journey. You were part of the Rice MBA for Executives class of 2019, just, just a class ahead of me. How did that experience help you move into the position you're in today? First of all, by you know having the degree, uh, having that on paper, but also just what uh, you were able to gain from the program and how you're able to put that in action today in your day-to-day work. One of the big draws for me in going to Rice was their entrepreneurship program, sort of broadly, if I can sort of generalize that. That's maybe not a fair way to characterize it, but Rice is very passionate about entrepreneurship, not only at the business school, but in other parts of the university. And it was something that was just of interest to me. It was sort of this elusive thing for me, being a guy that had spent a bunch of time in large corporates. I'd launched products and done other things, but the idea of entrepreneurship was just really fascinating to me. And I had taken some entrepreneurship classes in undergrad and other things. And so when I got into Rice, I was very much actively trying to plug into the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the city. And so a lot of the networking conversations that I would have is around that topic. Didn't matter application. Obviously, I had spent a lot of time in energy, um, but that actually led to an opportunity to mentor medical startups out of MD Anderson's venture mentor system, which I've been doing for the last couple of years and meeting great people like Jane Henry and other alum that are working on really interesting things. And I just love hearing the story. And it was always just kind of this, I've got my own weight of incumbency with a family and four kids and quitting my job and going and starting a company seems like a big hurdle for me, but I'm going to sort of swim in the shallow end of the pool here and kind of hang out with entrepreneurs and kind of help where I can and provide kind of my perspective. And so it was very much sort of in and around those kinds of things. And that actually led me to launch my voiceover business, which I kind of do on the side. And that was kind of something that I could connect with startups on and I would help them with explainer videos or do different things. And so I was at Station Houston and I was at the Canon and I was talking with, you know, wherever I could spend my spare time around uh, startup founders and other things, uh, I very much attribute sort of my experience at Rice to that. And so took Al Danto's class and that just, you know, continues to kind of stoke the flame. But for me, it, it was never enough to sort of launch my own venture. It was just clear to me that there was a lot of opportunity to be around unique, interesting people that are passionate about their different problems and challenges and that my focus and skill set around strategy development and corporate strategy and M&A and other things could could help an early stage company. And I would say my my view on that is that as the diligence team that was kind of putting together the initial strategy around Halliburton Labs was out talking to people, uh, my name, I think, continued to come up as somebody that was involved in actively having conversations with these various groups. And so when I got the call from our CEO to to step in and take a leadership role, that was uh, something that for me, it was a no brainer. It was like, yeah, absolutely. I get to do all these really cool things and still work for Halliburton and make all that happen. It was just uh, really great. So uh, I very much attribute sort of that connectivity to uh, in part to the Rice experience, no doubt. It seems like it sort of put you on a path and, and moved you in the direction in which you were hoping to go. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny how how life works. It's just kind of like if you decide kind of where you'd like to spend your time, you start thinking in that way, you start talking to people about that and and some of those opportunities arise. And so 
Um, never in a million years would I have thought that that was something that Halliburton would be interested in doing. I really didn't anticipate that, but it was uh, it was a perfect fit, and it's something that I think is in my mind now that I'm six months deep into it, it's kind of like, why not Halliburton? Halliburton's got great resources and capabilities to be able to help the the startup community here. And, and it's just been a lot of fun. I know when I started the program at Rice, one common thing I heard was a lot of people said, you get out of it what you put into it. And it seems like you put so much into it, um, not just your coursework, but also just some opportunities at the Jones School in general for executives. You were one of the founding members of the Jones Student Association for Executives. Can you talk a little bit about what that is for our listeners who maybe don't know and why you found that that was so important to start? Yeah, the Jones Student Association for Executives is it's pretty self-explanatory, but I think what's novel about it is we had a student association for the full-timers. We had a student association for the evening and weekend professional program. And for whatever reason, we didn't have one for the executive program. And I think there's some historical context as to why that was the case. But it was something for me that as I was jumping into the MBA, that I was really passionate about the networking aspect of it. It was very much, there are really interesting, unique people here, lots of different backgrounds. I've been kind of in this pocket of industry for the last 10 years, and I'm just really interested in meeting new people and understanding kind of where they're at, sort of regardless of which program that they were in. And the executive program just felt a little bit isolated. And there's good reason for that in terms of sort of where they're at. Uh, Generally, the student body is in terms of their career and other things. But more and more, I thought there was some really interesting professionals and and full-timers that just felt like we were not sort of connecting with. And so I just started asking questions and I got uh, plugged in with the, the the JSA president and the JSAP president and sat in on some of their their meetings and other things. And it was just kind of, why couldn't we have something like this with the executives and help to sort of marry up that student association effort and engage the executive students uh, in a unique way? And so once it became clear that that was possible. And I had some conversations with the administration and kind of asked questions, you know, is why is, why are things the way they are? Is there some, you know, bylaw or something somewhere that I'd be, you know, some rule I'd be breaking or whatever. And it was kind of, as we were having the discussions, it was just like, yeah, nobody really could answer why it wasn't the case. And so uh, just drafted up the documents and got kind of a, a, a team together and, we stacked hands and said, we think this would be interesting. And we put it in front of the class and we, we voted on it and made it official and had support of the administration. And um, really it was just a lot of fun to be able to kind of take something again, kind of just an idea. And it was again, that entrepreneurial spirit of there's, there's a gap. Let's go create something that, that might have some, some staying power and have just been thrilled to see that that, has continued forward and and continued to to help support and drive additional connectivity and and that was something that was that was really important in terms of driving unity not only amongst our individual class but to other classes within the executive program and then more broadly across uh, all Rice MBA alum and I thought that was just really important one final little comment that really motivated me was 
when you graduate with your MBA at Rice, you get a piece of paper and it doesn't matter which program you're in, the full-time program or the professional program or the executive program, you get the same piece of paper. And I thought that was just a, a really unifying aspect in terms of outcome is kind of, we're all in this together. There's just really unique opportunities for us to connect. And that uh, that has continued to to bear fruit in in my life and my career and people that I had the opportunity to meet while in the executive program. And sure, I, I burned some extra calories kind of through that. Um, but, uh, but I'm, but I'm glad I did it. And it's something that I look back on and really proud of in terms of um, kind of contribution to back to rice. Absolutely. I, I think it's great. in your point about uh, sort of uniting the different programs, I had the opportunity to take some electives and I was with on teams with full timers and professionals. And that, that was great. And I've stayed in touch with some of them and they've reached out to me and I've reached out to them. So it's important, I think, to make the most of the Rice Network across the programs. And I think JSAE was the perfect outlet to do that. It was just a ton of fun. It really was. Uh, we were solving some really interesting challenges and um, got to to meet some interesting people and the, the the feedback continues to be positive. It was a pretty simple, I would say a simple fix when it was all said and done. Um, but but I'm, again, I'm glad to see that it's continuing to to add value to the program overall. You grew up in Washington State, um, got a chemical engineering degree at Brigham Young University. What initially brought you to Texas? Kind of dumb luck. I really lucked into getting into oil and gas and getting into into the state. Um, I had never stepped foot in the state of Texas until I moved here with my first job. Um, you know, I was Pacific Northwest kid. Um, I was a canvas paper maker was our, uh, was our mascot, small paper mill town. And for me kind of growing up, you were, you were either a lumberjack or you were an engineer at the mill. And it was just kind of the, the, the people that were in my life that seemed to be doing well and seemed to kind of know what was going on were associated with the mill. And so I just had it in my head at a young age that getting a chemical engineering degree would be a good idea. I didn't know really what that would entail. And uh, so made my way to, to Brigham Young. And my, my first kind of, I would say, experience with engineering was out at a plant in West Virginia, where I discovered that chemical engineering is really, you're just a glorified plumber. <laughs> and it was it was clear to me that I, I and, and no disrespect to the engineers out there, but for me personally, it was something that I couldn't kind of wrap my head around doing that kind of work. And so that internship was uh, really valuable for me. And so I went searching for kind of business related jobs with an engineering degree. And Dow Chemical had this program, they call it the commercial development program, where they take engineering undergrads and they put them through six months of, I joke, boot camp for sales, and they turn you into a B2B chemical salesperson. But one of the things you commit to in doing that program is geographic flexibility, that they, that they can send you to anywhere in the US in any one of their business lines. And that seemed like a good idea to me. And so I showed up, did that program, and they said, okay, uh, we just kind of launched this oil and gas facing business. We're gonna move you to Houston. And your first customer is going to be Schlumberger. And that was to me, uh, having learned that, you know, that's obviously that's not how you say it, um, <laughs> but that, that they had not, you know, they'd done some market research and other things, but 
uh, our, our engagement with the, the, the oil and gas sector at the time as business was, was something nascent. And so I moved to Houston and started calling on oil field services companies and really fell in love with kind of the concept of hydraulic fracturing and that, that that technology could bring energy independence to the U.S. And it was just a, a really fascinating thing. And so I started to chase that and that's what I was solving for. And my role previous to this one was I was managing Halliburton's global hydraulic fracturing strategy. And so for me, that was something that I had set my sights on uh, a number of years ago. That's a long way to say that's ultimately how I got to Texas is I just lucked into oil and gas. I sort of signed up for this lottery. They trained me to sell chemicals to large organizations and they parachuted me into Houston. And that's kind of where I've been ever since. You could have just said it was Schlumberger. That was, that's what that's what I, hope you, I hope you learned how to say it correctly before you started calling on them. I did. I did that. I, I figured that out quickly. So you alluded to this uh, briefly earlier, but you talked about um, voiceover work that you do on the side. Um, and for our listeners, in case you haven't noticed, Scott has a pretty amazing voice. And um, the very first time I met Scott, he spoke at our kickoff. Um, he was a year ahead of us in the executive program and spoke about the program and what to expect. And I remember in the break, all anybody could talk about was that guy has an amazing voice. He should do something with it. So you are doing some voiceover work. Talk a little bit about some people don't know what voiceover work is. Sort of explain what it is and and what um, you're doing with it and, and how you enjoy that. I'm sure it's completely different from your day job. It's been a lot of fun, and I, I I appreciate that. It's something that you know I'd I'd gotten that throughout my life, and like on the creative side of me was like always dormant. Like I was doing math and science and other stuff, and like never had any interest in acting or getting on stage or doing any of that. So I avoided the conversation for a long, long time, and I I got into it just by asking somebody who had kind of made a comment like, "Hey, you know, you should you ever thought about doing radio or something along those lines." And I just said, uh, maybe I just had no idea how to get into it. And it actually precipitated a conversation. He knew a gal who did um, anime voiceover for Netflix. And she helped me to kind of work through kind of next steps and, and what that would look like. And so, I mean, voiceover is just basically if you're ever hearing somebody's voice and you're not seeing their face, that's generally voiceover work. So that's often comes in the, it comes in the form of commercials. It comes in the form of voiceover on uh, explainer videos or trailers or audiobooks or whatever it might be. And it's really a big industry and a, and a growing and expanding industry as digital content continues to, to expand. And so I get a lot out of it. I think it's a lot of fun and something that I didn't expect in terms of, I would say, sort of becoming a professionally trained voiceover artist. Um, which I've spent the time to do is that it's it's relatively straightforward, but it's it's something that it all boils down to reading a script while not sounding like you're reading a script, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's sort of easier said than done. Um, but it it also helped just in terms of communication more broadly, being clear about who your audience is, the message you're trying to convey. And so I have found that to be very helpful in my day job as well as I think about having conversations with, you know, various parties and different people solving for different outcomes. And and that was certainly unexpected as I was going through that training just in terms of how to 
think about an audience and think about a message. And so I have a lot of fun with it. I don't have as much time to do it as I would like, but uh, I, I usually have one or two projects kind of in the hopper at any given time. I definitely think um, we don't always think about all the all the voices, you know, that we hear commercials, explainers, and people don't stop and think, oh, that's somebody um, doing that on the on the other end. Although some of the automation um, and artificial intelligence is taking over, but right now I can usually still decipher when it's when it's a real person. But I think over time um, that that might change. No doubt, no doubt, it's going to get better and better. But that that tonality and voice inflection. The, the human vocal cords are uh, are a pretty distinctive instrument. It'll be it'll take some time. I'm sure digital tech will catch up. So when you look ahead in your role at Halliburton Labs, where do you see it in five years, ten years? So I mean, for us, you know, we're a startup in and of ourselves. So we're up and running. We just uh, wrapped up last week our first finalist day event where we had ten startup companies presenting. We had over 150 registered attendees, and for for us, we want to bring on something like 15 companies a year. Maybe 12 to 15 is kind of our target, and we want to do that in three different cohorts. And so, for me, five years from now, we will have spent 12 months with something like 75 different companies, and. For us, that gives us an opportunity to have a front row seat as the energy transition is unfolding. And I think for us, that also creates some interesting opportunities as we think about future strategic decisions for the company, et cetera. And I would say that's probably where that spills over then into 10 plus years from now. I could anticipate that a new service line maybe springs out of something that uh, Halliburton Labs curated and incubated and, and worked with. Um, but it's, it's absolutely for, for us, that's, we're focused on the success of the entrepreneur. And so ensuring that we've got, uh, a, a number of great startups that are participating, but then also that as they, as they graduate and, and wrap up their time with us, that ultimately they're more investable than when they came in. And that's, that's something that's really critical in everything that we're solving for, there's no corporate overreach. So we're not taking rofers or board seats. Anything the company invents while they're with us belongs to them. And I think that's really important in terms of driving investability of the startup as they come in and participate is having some kind of entanglement with, with Halliburton in some form or fashion is something that we've really tried to make it as low friction as possible. I know with a lot of, of the more mainstream accelerators and incubators, they have sort of a demo day at the conclusion of the program. Does Halliburton Labs have that sort of demo day? And if so, how is it similar and how is it different when a startup has kind of gone through your program? I would say for us, we anticipate having a demo day. We just haven't turned the crank completely because we just haven't gotten to that point. But I agree that having sort of a culminating event that the startup founding team is working towards is very important in terms of their their participation. We'll have a mix of formal programming that they will go through. We provide what I'll term curated mentorship engagements with, uh, with the founding team. And so that becomes uh, a part of their experience. But then as they're trying to solve their problems and scale their business, as they run into issues and challenges, that that's where we have the Halliburton Labs backstop. They can come and ask us and we put them in touch with 
whether that's a Halliburton employee or somebody in our network. I like to tell these founding teams that a 30-minute conversation with the right person at Halliburton or in our network could save them as a company months and months of headache and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars as they go along in their journey. And we think that that's something that is is an important aspect of, of what we're bringing to the table. If someone is uh, founding a, a company right now and they think that it, it could be a good fit, how does one get involved with Halliburton Labs? Is it an application screening process, a pitch process? How does it work? Yeah, a little bit of both. So we have a website, HalliburtonLabs.com. There's an application form that's there. And we go through our diligence process three times a year. We in we invite applicants to come and pitch as a part of our finalist day. And once they've applied, once they've presented at a finalist day, then those are the two hurdles to be selected as a participant. And so that's that is really the 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 simple two-step process to to become a participant at Halliburton Labs. But we will be launching in 2021 uh, in Q1 a what I'll call term a digital extension of Halliburton Labs where we're bringing a crossroads of investors and entrepreneurs, members of academia, and kind of enthusiasts more broadly, uh, launching an online platform called Constellation, where we'll encourage those that uh, are not formal participants in Halliburton Labs to be a part of the clean energy dialogue, to network, meet people, learn about sort of how things are evolving. And so we're excited about bringing that uh, that to, to the forefront as well here in the, the next month or two. As you've had a couple of years now to reflect on your Rice business experience and sort of looking back at your career, how it started, where it is now, what advice would you give a, a potential business um, school student? My mantra was always, you got to start to finish. And so I think that for, for those that have started on the path, that's a first key step. But it's really, I would now amend that to, you got to have an idea of where you want to go. It really is sort of, no one has ownership of, of your career and your life and trajectory and all the things you spend your time doing. You've got full ownership of it. And sure, you've got kind of a, a mix of experiences and skills, and maybe you've got a current job or a current life situation or whatever it might be. But maintaining that tenacity and persistence, I think that that's that's something and I would echo uh, Christine something that you've already mentioned is you, you get out of the program what you put into it and that's I think very widely different experiences at Rice Business simply based on the kinds of things that they choose to do and get involved with etc and so that that I think is just really important is it's kind of it is what you make of it and so taking ownership of that taking stock of that personal accountability, all of those things I think are really important components so that when you do walk across that physical or virtual stage, however uh, that's working out, and you get that degree that you can look back and say you left it all on the field and that you really got the most out of the experience. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about our conversation today? I would just say there are so many opportunities out there, lots of different things to be done. 
Um, I'm just a big fan of being mission driven. There's a lot of things that are happening in this world that need improvement and need change and just be, be a force for good and use your powers for good, so to speak. And so that's something that I would just express. People should be, should think about their purpose and what, what they're trying to accomplish and the, the legacy that they want to leave behind and, and whatever form that takes. Scott Gale, Executive Director of Halliburton Labs and Rice Business Executive MBA Class of 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott, on I'll Have You Know. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Appreciate it, Christine. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.